So good evening, everyone. Uh, some of you may have uh, mentioned earlier, but if you walked in later, especially if you're new here and don't know, I'm a guest teacher here this evening, not the regular teacher. My name is Richard Shankman, and I live in Oakland. And I haven't been here for a while, but I know some of you, I teach here maybe once a year or maybe twice a year at most, something like that. So I'm happy to be back. And tonight I wanted to talk about just very practical, about meditation practice itself. And in particular, I want to focus on, for some of you, I know there's a mix. Some of you are very long-term meditators. Some of you may be pretty new. And, um, you know, it's a big world out there of, of you know, Meditation, first of all, there's many different goals to meditation, many different kinds of meditation. It's not just one thing. And for some people, it can be confusing. For example, uh, you'll hear about uh, insight meditation. In fact, the organ this organization is San SF, San Francisco Insight. So there's a whole kind of meditation. In Pali, it's with a V, Vipassana. And so insight, like, so some people wonder, well, what is that? Is that the same as mindfulness meditation? How does that compare with concentration meditation, loving-kindness meditation? So there's lots of different ways to meditate. They might not all, they may have overlaps, not necessarily the same goals. And it can sometimes be confusing. And as an example, Spirit Rock uh, has a retreat. I taught it a few times myself. It's called the Concentration Retreat. Some people here have sat that retreat. Well, that's already telling you that in that retreat they're doing something different. They're calling it the Concentration Retreat. It's one retreat a year they put that label on it, compared with all the other retreats, which might be Mindfulness or Insight Retreats. So already there's some differences there. So I hope to, I want to kind of, I want to say a few things about different, these kind of meditations and how they work together. And, you know, they're all, it's, it's all good. There's not a right or wrong or one better than anything else, but the more we understand, it can help inform our own practice. And before getting into the different styles of meditation, I want to back up and say something just about the, uh, what I call the building blocks of meditation, which is, you know, what do we mean when we say insight? So just spend a little time on that, or concentration those terms. That's basically what I'd like to do. Um, but before doing that, I want to just back up just to make sure we have the context about, from a Dharma perspective, why meditate. Uh, and of course it's not f for, and then when we understand that, that will help then inform what's the purpose, how does insight and concentration and mindfulness fit in and support those goals of why we want to meditate. You know, we'll all have our own uh, purposes, of course. It's not for anyone else to tell, tell you why to meditate. And I'll bet you if we went around, we, won't, we don't have time to do it, but uh, people are here for many different reasons. Some people come to meditation for, you know, stress reduction. Um, uh, some, I know people who, you know, their doctors told them meditation can help with their blood pressure and that brings them, or, or uh, uh, maybe we're dealing with some chronic illnesses or chronic pain and uh, have found that meditation can be helpful in dealing with that. You know, there can be lots of reasons to meditate, lots of benefits. Sometimes we may not really know specifically what our purpose is, but we know that um, 
was suffering in some way and perhaps think meditation might help. So it could be many reasons. And um, of course, all of those reasons are, are important. And they're all, from a Dharma perspective, they're all important benefits and they're real benefits that we can all have. So we want to uh, really uh, appreciate all of those benefits that can come from these practices. And I would offer that from a Dharma perspective, it's also adding, it's not throwing any of that away, but it's adding a piece in. And sometimes you'll hear this phrase called liberation through non-clinging. And so from a, I would say from a Dharma perspective, that's also a piece that from a Buddhist perspective is, is kind of a goal of why we do these practices in, in support of that. So it's like, okay, well, what's that? And the basic idea uh, of this liberation is, you know, um, well, look, all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, as human beings, how, how is it that we, as human beings, generally seek our happiness and our well-being? It, we're going to have some time to open it up for questions, but also sharing, so maybe you'll have your own take on this, if, what I'm about to say, uh, if you want to share. But I, I would say probably all of us, I know it's true for me, we want to, you know, we want to have more, we seek more of those situations and things and people and experiences that we want, that we think will make us happy. And we want to avoid the situations that are going to make us unhappy, right? No, nobody wants to have, I always get a laugh, but I, it's really true, you know, nobody here is trying to have more of what you don't want to happen to you and less of what you want, right? Nobody. And so we tend to, just as human beings, we're seeking our happiness in trying to uh, set up the conditions and the circumstances to have more likable or pleasant experiences and less unpleasant. And yeah, I don't think we're going to stop doing that, uh, right? And, but uh, I'm not saying we should stop doing that. I think the only, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, in case you haven't noticed, sometimes you do get what you want. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get what you don't want. That's just, right, that's life. That we only have so much control, there's an element of uncertainty to life. And there's the aspect that it's not always within our control. And uh, so I think the Dharma is asking us to, it's, it's like the old serenity prayer, is the Christian serenity prayer, and I can't, I have some kind of block about remembering it, but it's, it's so, but you know, it's basically, I think most of us know it, it's, you want to have the, to understand those things that you can change and then influence them and change them. And the things you can't change, you want to have the wisdom or the ability to have some acceptance around them, right? And the wisdom to know the difference. I kind of screwed it up, but that, that's basically it, right? Did I kind of, some of you are nodding again. So uh, um, that's the whole Dharma, really. Um, it's the question is, um, you know, in the end of the day, despite our best efforts, moment by moment, we get what we get. And I think the Dharma is asking us, well, what are we going to do with you get what you get? What are we going to do with that? And so part of the, of what it's, 
you know, and by the way, it's, I think it's even a little more of a precarious situation that we all find ourselves in than that. Because not only is there an element of uncontrollability or uncertainty in life, but if you stick around the Dharma scene for any length of time, you'll hear many, many talks and discussions about impermanence. Because even if you could control things, and which we can't, of course, but even if you could just set things up to be your ideal circumstances, it's not going to last, right? No experience we have. So that's one of the things we say is that it doesn't mean we can't seek happiness in having the right kind of life and experience, but um, uh, it's not ultimately going to solve our problem because even getting what you want doesn't last, right? And so we're in this human condition of uncertainty. There's a certain amount of suffering for all of us. Um, sometimes I stopped doing this, but I used to, uh, I learned better, but I used to start talks sometimes by saying, you know, good evening and welcome my fellow sufferers. And, and of course, there's a lot of truth to that because we all know what it is to suffer. But then that's not the whole picture because hopefully we have, we, that's not all we know. We, you know. It'd be nice if we had some periods of relief from suffering or maybe a little happiness. And it's going to vary for each of us. You know, if you're dealing with really chronic, difficult like depressions or anxieties or some of the chronic pain, you know, things where it's, it's hard to find peace, then you may be leaning a little more on more suffering more of the time. And some of us may have, even though we suffer, we may, you know, depending on our life circumstances, maybe be a little happier. So it's like that it's a mix for all of us. And so through all of this, though, we're still in the same situation of this uncertain, changing experience. And so I think from a Dharma perspective, I think that the invitation is, or the, the question for us is, can we find a way? This is this liberation through non-clinging. I would say it as, can we find a way in the midst of just all of this to um, live in a way where our hearts don't close off to ourselves and to others so much? We can really live more and more of the time in an open-hearted way with kindness and empathy and care, or we could say compassion, for ourselves and for others more and more. And can we live in a way where we're not so constricted or contracted, where we're learning to let go of clinging and be more in harmony with things more and more? And an image that I've often used, some of you have heard this, is, but I think it works really well, is an image of a circle. And you can think of yourself as sitting in the center of the circle, and then there's the boundary, the circumference of the circle. However wide it is, it encompasses, think of it as encompassing all the experiences of your life for which, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, but you can really be at peace. Right? And if something is too strong or too much for us, it's really gone outside our circle, and uh, it's just too much for us, and it's not like we should be able to be with it or work with it. It's gone beyond our capability. And we all can imagine and have situations like that. And you could think of these practices as expanding the circle to be able to hold more of all the ups and downs without them jerking us around so much and having more of a, of a presence and a wakefulness. 
so we have at least the possibility to make some wise responses to life. There's a real difference between being reactive to life and being able to respond to life. At least we have a chance then to, to make better choices. Yeah. So this is kind of at least what I would offer as, as a, another, in addition to all the things like the stress reduction and all that kind of stuff I was mentioning, this, this more from a Dharma perspective where it's really coming from around this liberation uh, kind of practice. And so you may hear things like this and you know perhaps say, um, yeah, okay, I, I get that. That sounds good. I, I'm signing up for that. Uh, Non-clinging. I want to live in a way where my heart does stay more open, doesn't close off to others or to myself, and where I'm, I'm able to be more present and awake and clear and less reactive, right, and all of these kind of things. So yeah, I'm signing up for that. And you will quickly find the ways when you're able to do that. And it won't take long also for you to see all the places where you can't do it, right? Where certain situations will come together and you'll be caught right back in and you'll be reactive again. Caught in awe of whatever your own patterns are. And our patterns are all different. I sometimes call them the, you know, the top ten tunes, and we each have our own top ten tunes. We may share different ones in common, but you know, the way I get reactive and create suffering may not be exactly the same way you do. So, but when the right circumstances come together, we see it's not always so easy. This is the place for these trainings of our hearts and minds to enable us to actualize these teachings, not just as an idea, but they become alive for us throughout more and more of our lives. So we can really meet our situations more open-heartedly and clearly, less reactively. Right? We need to train ourselves. This is the place for these meditation practices. Right? So let me talk then about um, what I was naming is what I would consider some of the foundational building blocks of meditation, and then I'll end by trying to kind of lay out some of these different paths of practice and how they fit together. Actually, I need to back up. I should say one of the things that you'll often hear in meditation is what's foundational. People will say, there's this word in Pali, it's sila, which is generally translated as morality or ethics. My personal favorite is the word virtue. But, and it's like you'll hear about what are called the precepts. And there's this list of five precepts. Many of you know this very well. For some it might be new. And they're basically training guidelines or training principles, such as not killing or non-harming, not stealing, not causing suffering around this powerful energy of sexuality, not causing suffering and harm around speech, they call it right speech or wise speech, not abusing intoxicants, right? things like that. Um, so, you know, there's kind of these training guidelines of morality is kind of the word you'll hear. I do think that those are foundational, but I actually think there's something more foundational. And this is not from the Buddha, it's just me, my own thing. And I think that's self-compassion, um, more foundational. And I say that because 
we can all be hard on ourselves at certain times, in certain situations. Some of us more than are prone towards it towards others than others. But if we are, um, you know, even if you undertake sincerely these beautiful, wholesome, wonderful practices, and you have a sincere intention to want to live in a way that, like, with the sila, the, the, the virtue or the morality, and you really want to undertake those practices, it does, you know, you can find all the ways in which you fall short and you're not perfect and we can end up tearing ourselves down, even for something like that, beating ourselves up. If we don't have the self-compassion, we can even meet something that's really wonderful and wholesome and good and create a suffering around that. So I, I, I don't want to say too much more about that tonight, um, but compassion and really self-compassion, kindness for ourselves, right? care for ourselves not being so hard on ourselves. If you don't know how to do that, that's okay. Sometimes the best we can do is just say, I want to, to be able to do this better. I hope someday I can do it. And we hold the, the, we just aim ourselves towards it and we hold it within our hearts and minds and we do the best we can. And I noticed tonight, already I think about 10 times I've said this phrase, do the best you can. I just realized I just said it again. But actually, that is also a, a place of kindness for ourselves, where we just know, you know, I'm going to try my best. And I know for some of you, you go, no, 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 it's not my best, because it is your best. So I, I just have to, let me just step aside. Take a little side thing every minute. So this is one of these good news, bad news things. So um, I'll give you the bad news first. You're doing the best you can. It looks like this. <laughs> now the good news. Good news. You're doing the best you can. It looks like this. You feel the difference? If you could do it better, you would. <laughs> this is what it looks like when you're trying your best. And so just to give ourselves a break. You wouldn't come to a place like this and sit and meditate and hang out and listen to Dharma and be part of, you know, if you didn't have a sincere, beautiful intention for how you want to live. Right? And we often judge ourselves by how well or poorly we're showing up in life or how we're judging ourselves to be doing this or that. And really a more accurate way to assess yourself is not by how well, good or bad you think you're doing it, but what's your intention or aspiration. And even when you get whatever it is for you, you get reactive or you screw up and you create more suffering for yourself or for others, you didn't lose your good intention about how you want to live from a better place. You just got caught in the moment. The reactive pattern got the best of you. That's what we're working on. So let's, if we're going to judge ourselves, don't lose sight. And, is, and you can ask yourself if it's true next time you create a, hopefully you don't create too big of a mess, but you, know, you create a problem or a mess in your life. Hopefully you can stop and remember it's something, yeah, we need to clean up our messes, no question about it. And, but uh, to, to ask ourselves, oh, what happened to my intention or my aspiration? You may have lost touch with it in the moment, but it's still, your deepest, highest aspirations are still real. So we can hold ourselves with a little kindness that way. 
So I could go on and on about that, but that's what I think is more foundational. So I consider what I was just talking about also to be in the in part of this whole kinds of practices called loving kindness practices and compassion practices. They're important. And maybe what I just said was one aspect of that. And so tonight I want to focus, uh, those are that's important, but I want to focus on more now on the mindfulness, concentration, and insight. So let me just define just what I mean by these terms. Um, because they're used in different ways. So, of course, the word mindfulness is used many, many different ways. Um, I have my own definition, and uh, it's pretty simple, and it's fine if you have a different definition. My definition of mindfulness is not being lost on automatic pilot. It just means knowing what's happening in any moment. And we can be mindful of anything. We can be mindful of others. We can be mindful of what's going on in our own bodies and hearts and minds. Sometimes when people kind of get lose their mindfulness, you'll hear people say, oh, that he or she, they, they went unconscious. We know what's meant, but they didn't go unconscious. They're conscious. They just got caught up and lost in themselves and what's happening. And when you kind of wake up, in relationship to something, you're, you sort of are mindful in the moment. You know what's happening, right? Of course, it's real different to say if you're angry and to you know to feel your anger, but you're just lost in it. Versus just to have your anger, you feel, but you just know what you know what's happening. You have some presence with it. That's what I mean by mindfulness. Very very simple. I think John Kabat-Zinn has a definition that I'm going to. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in a particular way. That's a fine definition. Uh, to me, that's more the act or practice of mindfulness, but the state of mindfulness to me is just not being on automatic pilot. So you can hold that however you want. So, of course, everything we're talking about depends on mindfulness because if we don't have mindfulness, again, we are lost in what's going on. We don't have a choice. And so a perfect example I often use is, like when we were doing the meditation, you know, the meditation instructions, you, whatever practice you're doing. Say, for example, you're practicing mindfulness of breathing. Um, um, you know, and then you'll get the instruction. What's the instruction when you forget about, the, you know, you're lost in thought and you've forgotten about the breath, what's the instruction? Come back. Right. Come back. It's a trick question. That's what everybody says, the instruction. No, that's what we all say. The instruction is to come back. I need people to say that to make this work. So thank you. That's what we all say. The instruction is to come back. But actually, um, when you're lost and gone, there is no instruction. You don't even know you're gone. The instruction only kicks in when you're already back and are aware of what's happened. That's why it was a trick question. <laughs> so that's why we say when you're lost, come back. You know, come back. No, once you you're already back, you know what's happening. You're not lost anymore. Now you have a choice point. It may be to beat myself up or to struggle or whatever, or maybe just to connect with your breathing again. So everything we're talking about depends on more to be present and not be lost and caught up in things. 
And so that's part of one of the qualities that we strengthen and develop over time. We can use our mindfulness then and direct our mindful attention in a particular way to develop and strengthen this next quality of concentration. And so, for example, by, and again, there's, I'm not going to get into all the different kinds of practices tonight. Uh, mindfulness of breathing is just one. There are many, many practices you can do. I'll, I'll just, just mention a bunch if, if, if I won't go into them. Um, there's mindfulness of sound, mantra, touch points, body scan, uh, just, to name, uh, just to name a few, uh, visualizations. There's a lot of practices you can do. And in fact, they can all lead you to the same place. Doesn't really matter. And we can say more about how that might work. It's finding the practices that work best for each of us to help settle our mind. So by bringing, I'll just use the example of breath, by keeping bringing your attention back to your breathing, or again, it could be mantra or whatever, it trains the mind, its ability to, to not get lost and to really be steady and undistracted strengthens. And in fact, the word that we translate for concentration in Pali and Sanskrit is samadhi. Samadhi. And it means undistracted. I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into it tonight, but just to say there's a range of ways in which an undistracted mind can develop. So there's not just one way concentration is taught or practiced, and not just one way. Um, uh, taught, practicing that it can develop. And in fact, matter of fact, this reminds me, I should say, if, if any of you are interested, I have two books back on the back table. You're welcome to check them out. One of them is my original book on the topic of samadhi, and it goes, it's not a how-to meditation, but actually goes through all, uh, in depth in our tradition all the different ways samadhi is understood and taught. And my second book, um, which is The Art and Skill of Buddhist Meditation, is a how-to practice, which is how to practice in a way that brings all these paths together as one path. So just let you know that's back there, if you want to check it out. Um, so this word samadhi, so I won't get into it in the talk here, but so uh, samadhi, concentration, but just think of it as the, to be steady and present so your mind's not jumping around all over the place. And any of you who've done much meditation, whether on retreat or in daily life, it doesn't have to be on retreats, you know for yourself that you can go from whatever daily life consciousness is, when we drop deeper into the meditation, there is a whole other level of consciousness that we access. And, and basically what happens as the concentration strengthens, you can think of it as turning your mind into, and either of these images work, either a Hubble telescope or an electron microscope. And it can feel either way, but it's that kind of power of perception because when our mind really is undistracted, our perceptions are subtle and operating on whole other levels. We have an awareness about what's going on in our bodies and minds that perhaps was inaccessible to us before and so much more we're aware of. And we really, really can see when we, we are clinging and reacting in ways and the causes that, right, that we haven't seen before uh, in, at a whole other level. So this concentration is important. And we also are more aware when, when we really are resting in a place where it's more liberated and free. And so 
through our mindfulness, we cultivate our, this, the mindfulness itself strengthens and we cultivate this concentration. And then that's the quality of the mind that we turn towards insight. And so what I mean by insight then is, is, is again, it's a big world and not just understood in only one way. But I think insight is any understanding, perception, experience, knowing, realization that liberates our hearts and minds, that serves to help us, again, as I said earlier, actualize these teachings of an open-hearted presence and being, and, this, and also you know, this place of non-clinging. Anything that, that's, that's in service of that, of freeing ourselves more, I call insight. And so there's a lot of levels. Again, I, I don't have time to go into all the ways it can manifest. But um, there can be psychological insights. And you know, going to psychotherapy, for example, isn't necessarily in service of Dharma. It can have other goals, but it, that alone can be Dharma insights when you have realizations of ways you've been creating suffering and it's really understood and seen clearly in ways you didn't know. Sometimes it can really liberate and some of these places can untangle themselves. And our whole state of living is more free. That's a real insight, psychological. Or it can be... Um, Anyway, many, many ways we start to understand ourselves, understand how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves. We start to understand how our bodies operate, our minds, our psychology, our emotions. Right? And the more we perceive and understand about ourselves, uh, hopefully we learn over time and with experience how to hold it more with kindness, how to learn how to let go when we are. Suffering, you know, there's times someone something will happen, and sometimes people will say, "We well, gotta let go." I remember I was time in my life I was struggling with something. Someone was saying, uh, "Well, you need to learn how to let go." And I said, "You know, you keep telling me I'm supposed to let go. You're not telling me how to let go. That's my trouble. I, I don't know how to let go." So we we you know this is the learning that we're learning through anything that helps. Open our hearts, free our minds as insights. So, one of the ways, so we have those are kind of building blocks. So, then we can take those building blocks and apply them in different combinations for these different kinds of meditation practice. And so, I like to think of all the different ways that meditation is taught as part of one meditation family, but you can think of them as different branches of the meditation family. So the loving kindness and compassion practices, is, they're all interrelated. I'm kind of artificially separating them out just for discussion. And um, so the, the loving kindness, the metta, those kind of practices, that's a branch. Insight meditation. So I'm going to make some gross generalizations here, and then I'll be able to wrap up, and I think we'll have plenty of time to open it up for the whole group if there's any discussion or questions or anything. So when you, people who practice insight meditation, again, this is a, a, just a rough, gross generalization, 
there's many techniques, but I think what they share in common is, is that you're mostly concerned with bringing your mindful awareness to meet the changing experience of your body, your mind, inner and outer experiences, and to really mindfully pay attention to what's happening. And just by doing that and putting your attention, you get a certain amount of concentration, but um, you're probably not so concerned about that. You're mostly, the emphasis is on the insight side, coming to see that things are changing and arising and passing away and noticing how you create suffering and are you able to rest and be present with things as they arise and pass away and directly paying attention to, again, insight, the ways that um, we create suffering and if, if we learn to let go of our suffering. And you're focusing on that. And you feel like you don't worry about the concentration as much because you'll get all you need just by continually bringing your attention back to you to the present moment. That's really will give you what you need. That's the path of, of insight, maybe. The path of concentration practice may be that people feel that it's so valuable and important to learn how to steady your mind that they, of course, the insight's important, but they're more emphasizing just the actual strengthening the ability of your mind to be undistracted itself. You want to cultivate certain meditative states of, of high undistractedness. And you may only turn to practices of insight meditation later after you've really strengthened the, your, your concentration. So you really have a sharp, keen perception. The path that I, uh, I, I, I'm personally, and these are all good, it's not one's better than another. I'll just share with you my own path, which is a third branch of the meditation family, which is you don't separate concentration and insight into separate paths. It's all one path. And I think Eugene, Eugene and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, he and I actually taught a retreat together at Spirit Rock several years ago. We called it One Path. And so I don't know if he talks about it so much here, but I'll give you my own take on it. Even though concentration and insight are not the same thing, the way they can integrate into one practice is real simple. You find whatever practice helps you feel like you're steadying and deepening. And sometimes you might know, and sometimes you might have to talk to someone, a teacher, or read books, or whatever. So don't worry if you don't know those practices for yourself. But let's just say working with mindfulness of breathing, for example. And you just stay with that. And you keep working with that practice. And during the times when your body is, is cooperating and you're not having a lot of other stuff coming up, you just stay with it and you just, your, your ability to concentrate will get stronger and stronger. And you'll be, you're really emphasizing the concentration side of the practice. And you just stay with that. That's all you have to do, period. You don't have to think about, am I doing concentration or insight? Because on its own, there will be many times, you, if you've meditated for any length of time, you know this, when you can't concentrate, or your body hurts, or your emotional stuff, or psychology, or things are just issues, stuff is just coming up. You're on the insight side of the practice, and you have to, the present moment is telling you this isn't a time for concentration. You have to learn to work, work with whatever's happening. So I learned, so maybe I have to, what's coming up is some 
anxiety or worry or anger or how do I work with this knee pain or whatever. You're on the insight side of the practice, and so we have to learn to be with that and all the tools and skills that we have to develop to work with whatever's happening. And then on its own, at some point, that will settle out. You're able to concentrate. You're back on the concentration side, so we just stay with that. And so just by letting our present, by staying open and attuned to whatever's happening, and not coming to meditation or to life with our own agenda about what we think is supposed to happen, but an openness, like, a, like an experimental receptive attitude just to look to see what's happening and what's most useful and skillful to work with what's happening. Um, and again, you come to know, oh, I'm, I'm really deepening the concentration to go with that. Oh, something else is going on right now. So sometimes people think, you ask them, how was your meditation? And they're really reporting, their, their evaluation of it is based on how pleasant it was or not. So when your mind was clear and you were deep and concentrated, they say, man, I had a great meditation. Right? We all know, let's be honest, what's a good meditation? We know. What's a bad meditation? We all know. But actually, it's not a good or bad. It's just what's happening in the present moment. So when it feels like it's all falling apart, it didn't fall apart. It's just changed. Remember this thing on impermanence? Everything changes. And so if we can hold an open-hearted attitude, it's like, oh, um, anger's up. Can I be as interested and learn how to let go of my suffering around this or let go of my anger or work with it or I may have to do some psychotherapy. I, I don't know, whatever. Let our present moment inform what's needed. And so we learn to surf kind of seamlessly back and forth between insight side, the concentration side. And we can actually take both of them very far, as far deep as we want to take them. And then that way you don't have to have, oh, I'm doing concentration, I'm not doing insight. Oh, if I'm doing concentration, I must not be doing insight. If I'm doing insight, well, I'm not emphasizing concentration. You can just, this is called the um, have your cake and eat it too uh, path of meditation. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the style that I, that's kind of what I wrote back in there in that book. So that's kind of that style. So it's all different. It's not right or wrong. Finding our own path, yeah. So just to end, uh, last thing I'll say is, uh, I just want to come back and wrap up again with which I started with, which the foundational place of the, the open-hearted place, and especially for ourselves. And um, uh, you know, just hoping that regardless of your practice or what you're doing, that you don't forget, again, you do the best you can to try to bring that a kind attitude in. Um, it can be so helpful. And especially if you ever find yourself struggling, especially in meditation sometimes, if you really have a hard time, sometimes people find that by physically bringing a smile to the face, you can experiment with this sometimes. It's not faking it or pretending. You just experiment. It can make a shift so that we can have more relaxation. You have to see if it works for you or not to enable us then to work with the difficulty that's actually there. Yeah. So we find a way, just the best we can, to, to bring some kind of kindness and ease, even if it's a little bit. And then that will support us in, in any of these styles. Yeah. So I appreciate your kind attention. And, 
and we have some time now to open up. Uh, again, if questions are fine, but you may have something to share, comments, or just anything. I don't know, how does it usually work? Do people come talk in the mic, or do you just stand up and come to the mic? So if anybody would like to, you know, or if you're not comfortable coming to the mic, it's, you know, Outside of our circle, 
we, if, if it really is too much for us, we better either be able to bring up our ability to be with it, expand our circle to encompass it, or we better bring the intensity down so it is within our circle. One of those two. And if there is something that genuinely is too much for us to work with, and we genuinely aren't able to bring the intensity down, look, that's a lot of suffering. It just is. And I, you know, with that, all bets are off. If, if you're telling me that we've all can think about that, this is too much for me, and life is not affording me the luxury to either get away from it or bring the intensity down or fix it and change it. I, I mean, I'm not trying to be glib here, but I, you know, that's a tough situation, and I, I don't know if it's really that. So that's when we need even more compassion for ourselves because we're going to suffer in those times. And so the other thing is to know is until we're, you know, whatever, Buddha's ourselves, Maybe I, maybe I don't know the definition of a Buddha is there is no edge to the circle. I, I don't know. I'm not to the end of this path yet. But um, until we're there, we're all going to have an edge. And we're not doing anything wrong by definition. If we're human beings and we're not Buddhas, there's places of greed, hatred, and delusion or the potential for greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds. And you do the best you can. So I'll, I'll tell you what angle I'm really coming at this from is I'm trying to use like meditative practice to enhance psychotherapy and psychotherapy to enhance meditation. That sounds practice. great. And basically what I've been doing for this this like thing that I'm confronting is going crazy and hoping the therapist will like calm me down and, 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 and guide me through it. But I'd like to also kind of be driving. It sounds like sometimes you just can't drive. Yeah, I mean, so just, for, I'm just, you know, I don't know you, and I'm just speaking in generality, so it's hard to be specific, but hopefully, you, you look, you have a combination of, you have to make your best choices moment by moment. If you're in psychotherapy, you know, how much are you making choices and hoping the therapy, how much are you giving over to let the wisdom and the experience of the psychotherapist to kind of lead you, same thing from a Dharma perspective, how much do you, so you can have to find your way the best you can, but I would just offer that even if we're making choices and how to work with things and they turn out later not to have been the best choice because we're maybe, for example, I'm just making this up, I don't know if this is actually true for you, but just like maybe the times when you let yourself kind of go that turned out, you know, that really wasn't so great or whatever. If we're, if we're as honest as we can be with ourselves, even though we can't see our own blind spots, that's why they're blind spots, over time, things become clear and aware, and eventually, it, it, I really have a lot of faith and belief that the way reveals itself better and that it can work its way out. And hopefully, we don't create too much breakage and suffering along the way. That's what I would offer to you. Thank you. Okay for now? Okay, but anyway, so I thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. So we do have more time, if anything else. We don't have to use all the time either. If yeah. <coughs> oh, okay. I was going to say may end early. That'd be okay too. But go ahead. Yes. Hi. Yes, sure. This is a question or a comment. I found that unless I have some movement, um, I really don't go into the deeper state. And I saw when I did a half day thing on Saturday. Things were going okay, but as soon as we did the walking meditation and then we stopped, 
by the time I left, I was hitting states of euphoria that lasted for about three hours, where I felt really... You mean you needed to have physical movement, you're saying? To right. Yeah. That I was able to bring presence. And the same thing, when I go to Spirit Rock, the morning is really hard. And after the afternoon hike, I can sit better. When I did the long retreat with you, the same thing happened. I just wondered if you might be able to comment about the very fact of movement itself and how yeah. it... But we're all different, so I think you've just, of course, just for yourself, I can make a general comment, but you just answered for yourself. You know that the way you work is you need to have your body moving. And so because we're all different, like for example, when I teach a retreat, you know, sometimes it's not, there is no one size fits all. And a matter of fact, no matter what instruction or technique or method or anything we give, it'll be a good fit for some people and for other people it's not going to be a good fit because we're all different. So there's no one structure that's going to work well for everyone. So for example, when I go on ret retreats, I tend my body not do a lot of movement. I get really, really still more and everything and it works well for me, you know, to, to do that. And there are lots of people, they're the exact opposite. And sometimes I'll say to people, listen, you need to, like, twice a day, go out and do a long power walk or a run up that mountain or bring your bike or, you know, you need to go do that. And by doing that, it gets your energy out, it balances whatever it needs to do, and then you're actually able to go deeper. And so we have to look and see what is... Um, we use the term skillful means for each of us, right? And it's not one way. And so, um, you know, you already know the answer for you, and we, that's really my answer. We have to look to ourselves. And I think one of the things that happens over time, for those of you, if you're new, maybe you don't know, you don't have a lot of experience. So maybe you'll go on a retreat, you read a book, and you'll hear one teacher will say, just do this. So we try it out. We learn, and then is it working? Is it not working? Somebody else will give you a different instruction. Over time, we don't need outside. We know, and we can listen to ourselves and trust it more and more through experience. Then we listen to it's kind of our inner teacher. Yeah, I think I used to think it was cheating, that why couldn't I just sit still and, and do it? And I found that I can't sit still if I'm allowed to move yeah. for about an hour right. and a half. So that's a deepening sit. in wisdom, really, that's come from experience that to, to, you just said it yourself, to learn it's not only not cheating, it would act, it's actually doing, it's counterproductive. To, so again, it's finding, we're all different. Many, many people need to be really moving their body a lot. And not only that, besides just the general thing of moving the body, just going to the difference between sitting and walking meditation, there can be this idea, okay, you know, the sitting silently still, that's, that's the real meditation. Okay, I'll do walking meditation. But there are plenty of people out there who go, you know, um, I don't know what all this is about the sitting. I mean, I guess if you make me do it, I'll do it. But for them, the walking is when it really just opens up. That's their way. It's not just one way. I mean, it just isn't. So, no, thank you. Did you? It's being recorded. Yeah. Well, there's a recorder here. It's. It's. Let me say this. You turn. You're recording. Okay. I haven't touched it, so I think it's recording. Also, be aware. It's not. It's not directly in. It's just picking up the the audio here. So 
I don't know the quality of that. You can see. So and there is a recording. That, you know, you guys, SF Insight will do whatever you want to do with it. So yeah. So yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.